Section thirty two of Woman in the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Woman in the Nineteenth Century and Kindred Papers Relating to the Sphere, Condition, and Duties of Woman by Margaret Fuller. Section thirty two. Journals and Letters, Part One. I like to listen to the soliloquies of a bright child. In this microcosm the philosophical observer may trace the natural progression of the mind of mankind. I often silently observe L. with this view. He is generally imitative and dramatic. The day-school, the singing-school, or the evening-party are acted out with admirable variety in the humours of the scene and great discrimination of character in its broader features. What is chiefly remarkable is his unconsciousness of his mental processes, and how thoughts it would be impossible for him to recall spring up in his mind like flowers and weeds in the soil. But to-night he was truly in a state of lyrical inspiration, his eyes flashing, his face glowing, and his whole composition chanted out in an almost metrical form. He began by mourning the death of a certain Harriet, whom he had let go to foreign parts, and who had died at sea. He described her as having blue sparkling eyes and a sweet smile, and lamented that he could never kiss her cold lips again. This part, which he continued for some time, was in prolonged cadences, and a low mournful tone, with a frequently recurring burden of, O oh, my Harriet, shall I never see thee more. Extract from Journal it is so true that a woman may be in love with a woman, and a man with a man. It is pleasant to be sure of it, because it is undoubtedly the same love that we shall feel when we are angels, when we ascend to the only fit place for the mignon, where sie fragen mich nach Mann und Welb. It is regulated by the same law as that of love between persons of different sexes, only it is purely intellectual and spiritual unprefaced by any mixture of lower instincts, undisturbed by any need of consulting temporal interests. Its law is the desire of the spirit to realize a whole, which makes it seek in another being that which it finds not in itself. Thus the beautiful seek the strong, the mute seek the eloquent, the butterfly settles on the dark flower. Why did Socrates so love Alcibiades? Why did Kerner so love Schneider? How natural is the love of Wallenstein for Max, that of Madame de Stahl for de Recamier, mine for—I loved blank for a time with as much passion as I was then strong to feel. Her face was always gleaming before me, her voice was echoing in my ear, all poetic thoughts clustered round the dear image. This love was for me a key which unlocked many a treasure which I still possess. It was the carbuncle, emblematic gem, which cast light into many of the darkest corners of human nature. She loved me too, though not so much, because her nature was less high, less grave, less large, less deep. But she loved more tenderly, less passionately. She loved me, for I well remember her suffering when she first could feel my faults, and knew one part of the exquisite veil rent away. How she wished to stay apart and weep the whole day. 
These thoughts were suggested by a large engraving representing Madame Recamier in her boudoir. I have so often thought over the intimacy between her and Madame de Stal. Madame Recamier is half reclining on a sofa. She is clad in white drapery, which clings very gracefully to her round but elegantly slender form. Her beautiful neck and arms are bare, her hair knotted up so as to show the contour of her truly feminine head to great advantage. A book lies carelessly on her lap, one hand yet holds it at the place where she left off reading. Her lovely face is turned towards us. She appears to muse on what she has been reading. When we see a woman in a picture with a book, she seems to be doing precisely that for which she was born. The book gives such an expression of purity to the female figure. A large window, partially veiled by a white curtain, gives a view of a city at some little distance. On one side stand the harp and piano, there are just books enough for a lady's boudoir. There is no picture, except one of Doré Camier herself as Corinne. This is absurd, but the absurdity is interesting, as recalling the connection. You imagine her to have been reading one of de Stael's books, and to be now pondering what those brilliant words of her gifted friend can mean. Everything in the room is in keeping. Nothing appears to have been put there because other people have it, but there is nothing which shows a taste more noble and refined than you would expect from the fair Frenchwoman. All is elegant, modern, in harmony with the delicate habits and superficial culture which you would look for in its occupant. To her mother. September 5, 1887. If I stay in Providence and more money is wanting than can otherwise be furnished, I will take a private class, which is ready for me, and by which, even if I reduced my terms to suit the place, I can earn the four hundred dollars that blank will need. If I do not stay, I will let her have my portion of our income with her own, or even capital which I have a right to take up, and come into this or some other economical place, and live at the cheapest rate. It will not be even a sacrifice to me to do so, for I am weary of society, and long for the opportunity for solitary concentration of thought. I know what I say. If I live you may rely upon me. God be with you, my dear mother. I am sure he will prosper the doings of so excellent a woman if you will only keep your mind calm and be firm. Trust your daughter, too. I feel increasing trust in mine own good mind. We will take good care of the children and of one another. Never fear to trouble me with your perplexities. I can never be so situated that I do not earnestly wish to know them. Besides, things do not trouble me as they did, for I feel within myself the power to aid, to serve. Most affectionately, your daughter, M. Part of Letter to M. Providence, October 7, 1838. For yourself, dear blank, you have attained an important age. No plan is desirable for you which is to be pursued with precision. The world, the events of every day which no one can predict, are to be your teachers, and you must in some degree give yourself up and submit to be led captive if you would learn from them. Principle must be at the helm, but thought must shift its direction with the winds and waves. Happy as you are thus far in worthy friends, you are not in much danger of rash intimacies or great errors. I think, upon the whole, quite highly of your judgment about people and conduct, for, though your first feelings are often extravagant, they are soon balanced. 
I do not know other faults in you besides that want of retirement of mind which I have before spoken of. If M and A want too much seclusion, there is nothing so fatal to the finer faculties as too ready or too extended a publicity. There is some danger lest there be no real religion in the heart which craves too much of daily sympathy. Through your mind the stream of life has coursed with such rapidity that it has often swept away the seed or loosened the roots of the young plants before they had ripened any fruit. I should think writing would be very good for you. A journal of your life and analyses of your thoughts would teach you how to generalize and give firmness to your conclusions. Do not write down merely that things are beautiful, or the reverse, but what they are and why they are beautiful or otherwise and show these papers, at least at present, to nobody. Be your own judge and your own helper. Do not go too soon to any one with your difficulties, but try to clear them up for yourself. I think the course of reading you have fallen upon of late will be better for you than such books as you formerly read, addressed rather to the taste and imagination than the judgment. The love of beauty has rather an undue development in your mind. See now what it is and what it has been. Leave for a time the ideal, and return to the real. I should think two or three hours a day would be quite enough at present for you to give to books. Now learn buying and selling, keeping the house, directing the servants, all that will bring you worlds of wisdom if you keep it subordinate to the one grand aim of perfecting the whole being. And let your self-respect forbid you to do imperfectly anything that you do at all. I always feel ashamed when I write with this air of wisdom but you will see by my hints what I mean. Your mind wants depth and precision, your character condensation. Keep your high aim steadily in view. Life will open the path to reach it. I think blank, even if she be in excess, is an excellent friend for you. Her character seems to have what yours wants, whether she has or has not found the right way. To her brother, A. B. F. Providence, February 19, 1838. My dear A., I wish you could see the journals of two dear little girls, eleven years old, in my school. They love one another just like Betsy Bell and Mary Gray in the ballad. They are just of a size, both lively as birds, affectionate, gentle, ambitious in good works and knowledge. They encourage one another constantly to do right. They are rivals, but never jealous of one another. One has the quicker intellect, the other is the prettier. I have never had occasion to find fault with either, and the forwardness of their minds has induced me to take both into my reading class, where they are associated with girls many years their elders. Particular pains do they take with their journals. These are written daily in a beautiful fair round hand, well composed, showing attention and memory well trained, with many pleasing sallies of playfulness, and some very interesting thoughts to the same. Jamaica Plain, December twentieth, 1840. About your school I do not think I could give you much advice which would be of value, unless I could know your position more in detail. The most important rule is, in all relations with our fellow-creatures, never forget that, if they are imperfect persons, they are immortal souls, and treat them as you would wish to be treated by the light of that thought. As to the application of means, abstain from punishment as much as possible, and use encouragement as far as you can, without flattery. But be even more careful as to strict truth in this regard towards children than to persons of your own age. For to the child, 
the parent or the teacher is the representative of justice. And as that of life is severe, an education which in any degree excites vanity is the very worst preparation for that general and crowded school. I doubt not you will teach grammar well, as I saw you aimed at principles in your practice. In geography try to make pictures of the scenes, that they may be present to their imaginations, and the nobler faculties be brought into action as well as memory. In history try to study and paint the characters of great men. They best interpret the leadings of events amid the nations. I am pleased with your way of speaking of both people and pupils. Your view seems from the right point. Yet beware of over-great pleasure in being popular or even beloved. As far as an amiable disposition and powers of entertainment make you so, it is a happiness. But if there is one grain of plausibility, it is poison. But I will not play mentor too much, lest I make you averse to write to your very affectionate sister. M. To her brother R. I entirely agree in what you say of tuition and intuition. The two must act and react upon one another to make a man, to form a mind. Drudgery is as necessary to call out the treasures of the mind as harrowing and planting those of the earth. And besides, the growths of literature and art are as much nature as the trees in conquered woods, but nature idealized and perfected. To the same. 1841. I take great pleasure in that feeling of the living presence of beauty in nature which your letters show. But you, who have now lived long enough to see some of my prophecies fulfilled, will not deny, though you may not yet believe the truth of my words, when I say you go to an extreme in your denunciations of cities and the social institutions. These are a growth also, and, as well as the diseases which come upon them, under the control of the one spirit as much as the great tree on which the insects prey, and in whose bark the busy bird has made many a wound. When we get the proper perspective of these things, we shall find man, however artificial, still a part of nature. Meanwhile let us trust, and while it is the soul's duty ever to bear witness to the best it knows, let us not be hasty to conclude that in what suits us not there can be no good. Let us be sure there must be eventual good, could we but see far enough to discern it. In maintaining perfect truth to ourselves, and choosing that mode of being which suits us, we had best leave others alone as much as may be. You prefer the country, and I doubt not it is on the whole a better condition of life to live there. But at the country party you have mentioned, you saw that no circumstances will keep people from being frivolous. One may be gossiping and vulgar and idle in the country, earnest and noble and wise in the city. Nature cannot be kept from us while there is a sky above, with so much as one star to remind us of prayer in the silent night. As I walked home this evening at sunset over the mill-dam, towards the city, I saw very distinctly that the city also is a bed in God's garden. More of this some other time. To a Young Friend Concord, May 2, 1887 My dear, I am passing happy here, except that I am not well, so unwell that I fear I must go home and ask my good mother to let me rest and vegetate beneath her sunny kindness for a while. The excitement of conversation prevents my sleeping. The drive here with Mr. E. was delightful. Dear nature and time, so often calumniated, will take excellent care of us if we will let them. The wisdom lies in schooling the heart not to expect too much. I did that good thing when I came here, and I am rich. On Sunday I drove to Watertown with the author of Nature. 
The trees were still bare, but the little birds care not for that. They revel and carol and wildly tell their hopes, while the gentle, voluble south wind plays with the dry leaves, and the pine-trees sigh with their soul-like sounds for June. It was beauteous, and care and routine fled away, and I was as if they had never been, except that I vaguely whispered to myself that all had been well with me. The baby here is beautiful. He looks like his father, and smiles so sweetly on all hearty good people. I play with him a good deal, and he comes so natural after Dante and other poets. Ever faithfully, your friend. To the Same, 1837 My beloved child, I was very glad to get your note. Do not think you must only write to your friends when you can tell them you are happy. They will not misunderstand you in the dark hour, nor think you forsaken if cast down. Though your letter of Wednesday was very sweet to me, yet I knew it could not last as it was then. These hours of heavenly heroic strength leave us, but they come again. Their memory is with us amid after trials, and gives us a foretaste of that era when the steadfast soul shall be the only reality. My dearest, you must suffer, but you will always be growing stronger, and with every trial nobly met you will feel a growing assurance that nobleness is not a mere sentiment with you. I sympathize deeply in your anxiety about your mother. Yet I cannot but remember the bootless fear and agitation about my mother, and how strangely our destinies were guided. Take refuge in prayer when you are most troubled. The door of the sanctuary will never be shut against you. I send you a paper which is very sacred to me. Bless heaven that your heart is awakened to sacred duties before any kind of gentle ministering has become impossible, before any relation has been broken. Lines written in March, 1836 I will not leave you comfortless. O friend divine, this promise dear falls sweetly on the weary ear. Often in hours of sickening pain it soothes me to thy rest again. Might I a true disciple be, following thy footsteps faithfully, then should I still the succour prove of him who gave his life for love. When this fond heart would vainly beat, for bliss that ne'er on earth we meet, for perfect sympathy of soul, from those such heavy laws control. When, roused from passion's ecstasy, I see the dreams that filled it fly, amid my bitter tears and sighs those gentle words before me rise. With aching brows and feverish brain the founts of intellect I drain, and con with over-anxious thought what poets sung and heroes wrought. Enchanted with their deeds and lays, I with like gems would deck my days. No fires creative in me burn, and humbled I to thee return. When blackest clouds around me rolled, of scepticism drear and cold, when love and hope and joy and pride forsook a spirit deeply tried, my reason wavered in that hour, prayer too impatient lost its power. From thy benignity a ray I caught and found the perfect day. A head revered in dust was laid, for the first time I watched my dead. The widow's sobs were checked in vain, and childhood's tears poured down like rain. In awe I gazed on that dear face, in sorrow years gone by retrace. When nearest duties most forgot I might have blessed and did it not. Ignorant his wisdom I reproved, heedless passed by what most he loved, 
knew not a life like his to prize of ceaseless toil and sacrifice. No tears can now that hushed heart move, no cares display a daughter's love, the fair occasion lost no more can thoughts more just to thee restore. What can I do, and how atone for all I've done and left undone? Tearful I search the parting words which the beloved John records. Not comfortless. I dry my eyes, my duties clear before me rise, before thou think'st of taste or pride, see home affections satisfied. Be not with generous thoughts content, but on well-doing constant bent. When self seems dear, self-seeking fair, remember this sad hour in prayer. Though all thou wishest fly thy touch, much can one do who loveth much. More of thy spirit, Jesus, give, not comfortless, though sad to live. And yet not sad, if I can know, to copy him who here below sought but to do his father's will, though from such sweet composure still my heart be far. Wilt thou not aid one whose best hopes on thee are stayed? Breathe into me thy perfect love, and guide me to thy rest above. To her brother R. Mr. Keats, Emma's father, is dead. To me this brings unusual sorrow, though I have never yet seen him. But I thought of him as one of the very few persons known to me by reputation, whose acquaintance might enrich me. His character was a sufficient answer to the doubt whether a merchant can be a man of honour. He was, like your father, a man all whose virtues had stood the test. He was no word-hero. To a Young Friend Providence, June 16, 1837 My dear Blank, I pray you, amid all your duties, to keep some hours to yourself. Do not let my example lead you into excessive exertions. I pay dear for extravagance of this sort. Five years ago I had no idea of the languor and want of animal spirits which torment me now. Animal spirits are not to be despised. An earnest mind and seeking heart will not often be troubled by despondency. But unless the blood can dance at proper times, the lighter passages of life lose all their refreshment and suggestion. I wish you and Blank had been here last Saturday. Our schoolhouse was dedicated, and Mr. Emerson made the address. It was a noble appeal in behalf of the best interests of culture, and seemingly here was fit occasion. The building was beautiful, and furnished with an even elegant propriety. I am at perfect liberty to do what I please, and there are apparently the best dispositions, if not the best preparation, on the part of the hundred and fifty young minds with whom I am to be brought in contact. I sigh for the country. Trees, birds, and flowers assure me that June is here but I must walk through streets many and long to get sight of any expanse of green. I had no fine weather while at home, though the quiet and rest were delightful to me. The sun did not shine once really warmly, nor did the apple-trees put on their blossoms until the very day I came away. Sonnet To the Same Although the sweet still watches of the night find me all lonely now, yet the delight hath not quite gone which from thy presence flows. The love, the joy that in thy bosom glows, lingers to cheer thy friend. 
From thy fresh dawn some golden exhalations have I drawn, To make less dim my dusty noon. Thy tones are with me still, some plaintive as the moans of dryads, When their native groves must fall, Some wildly wailing like the clarion call On battlefield strewn with the noble dead, Some in soft romance, like the echoes bred In the most secret groves of Arcady, Yet all, wild, sad, or soft, how steeped in poesy. Providence, April 1838 End of section 32